Hey, you guys, before the show officially starts, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Club W, which is going to be your new favorite wine club. I don't know if you're like me, but I am um, frankly kind of embarrassed that I don't know more about wine than I do, and I don't know very much at all. And I just feel like at this point in my life, given how many years I've walked the earth and how much I know about stuff, I should I should have like a workable knowledge base about wine. However, I find it all very overwhelming. And uh, when people start to talk about wine, my brain just turns into like, a, like there's white noise. And there's also a hum because I don't understand what they're talking about. And also, to be fully honest, which I'm going to be perfectly honest, perfectly fully, I just assume it's BS. Uh, but that is where Club W comes in. They take all the the guesswork and the stress and the feeling overwhelmed and the thing where you're standing there in front of a bazillion bottles of wine at a wine shop and you're like, I'm going, I want to bring someone a nice bottle of wine, but I don't know if I should choose an odd or an even year or whatever. Um, they just help you because they give you a palate profile test and you, and it, it's fun. It's just six questions. It's very easy. You fill it out. And they tell you what kind of wines uh, you will like, and then you get your wines, and then you try them, and then the the more wines you try, the sort of better they will get at targeting ex- exactly what you want. Um, and you can also always overrule their suggestions and choose other ones. It's just, it's pretty amazing. Um, it's easy. You just go to clubw.com and answer six simple questions and their algorithm creates a palette profile just for you. They send wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. Club W is leading the grape to glass wine revolution. So they work directly with vineyards to cut out the middleman, which saves you money. So the wine that you get is really good and really high quality. And it's, there's not this insane markup, which there is pretty much everywhere. That's not grape to glass. So with Club W, you get premium wine customized to your taste at a third of what you pay at the store, and they even have a no-risk 100% guarantee that you'll love what they send you. And right now, Club W is offering my listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash Allison. So stop wasting time and money messing around at retail stores and start drinking wine you know you're going to love. Just go to clubw.com slash Allison to get 50% off your first order. Again, that's clubw.com slash Allison. And try it and then let me know what you think. Tweet me at Allison Rosen or at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Send a photo. I enjoy photos. Okay, you guys, here's the episode with Kelly Carlin. I really enjoyed talking with her, and I think you will enjoy listening. Here we go. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with perfect good times never end. Allison Rosen. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here in dining room studios with author of A Carlin Home Companion and return guest Kelly Carlin. Hello. I am here in the dining room. That's right. That that the dining room that is now the studios and is no longer a dining room. No, we that just is true. Eat on the couch, <laughs> which is where we always ate. To be honest, yeah, really. What it, dining rooms are just places to put things down when you I walk in the door. Do at think least mine that's, is. That's yes. Mine's a storage unit, basically. My dining room, right? So yeah. then, where do you guys eat? We eat in front of the TV on the at the couch. Yeah, exactly. My 
what, what I hear is that if you have kids, that changes. And I can see if you have kids, you don't want to have to get like a little love seat for them to sit on in front of the couch. But <laughs> till then, I, ta- I have no use for tables other than for mics. Unless you are a child of the 60s, then the whole family with TV trays sat in front of the TV because that's what we did in my, in my house. <laughs> so when I was reading your book, I had a food memory, which was you mentioned that you like there was some scene where you would sneak off and pop a couple different TV dinners in the microwave. Yes, a fried chicken and Salisbury steak. Right. Yes. I think Salisbury steak, I had that one sometimes. Yes, yes. And yeah, I remember those. And you didn't like when the corn infiltrated your brownie. No, I don't mix food. I'm not, and especially certainly not a vegetable, Mm-mm. which corn's kind of a starch, but in my brownie. Gross. How rude of it. <laughs> But, you know, when they were frozen, you couldn't pick it off until it had melted enough. So you just kind of had to pick it out. Yeah. And I just said popped in the microwave, but it was the oven. It right? was. No, it was an oven back then. Yeah. The microwaves. When they came out, they were the size of a dining room, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know what were the, cru- to me, the cruddiest frozen dinner situations uh, that had the little dessert in them? When the dessert was fruit compost, Ugh. that's not dessert. That's basically just another side that Ugh, you don't want. That, yeah, that your mom would make you eat. Here, have some peaches or something. Right. But of course, this is back when fruit was like canned peaches. I mean, I do remember kids at school. I mean, those pudding, those little metal pudding things that you had to pull them. And we were kids. Oh, they let yeah. us pull it off. You they know, dangerous. They were dangerous. But some kids, their moms didn't give them the pudding. They gave them like peaches in that like sugary... Oh, I felt so sorry for those kids. And it's probably the same amount of sugar and the same amount of calories as pudding (laughs) with none of the delightfulness. Play it, Jeff. I think we need to hear it. We talk about snacks enough that we have that. Um, So, so many things to talk about. Mm -hmm. We should talk about your book because uh, you're, I, we were talking a little bit before we turned the mics on kind of a promotional whirlwind for you right now, right? (laughs) Yes. The book came out yesterday. And uh, so, yeah, so the 15th, the 15th of September, sure which this, in yeah. podcasting world, does it really matter what date it is? Who no. knows? It does not. We live in a vacuum, a void of time. Uh, but yeah, and that, it started about two, three weeks ago, a couple of interviews, da, 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 and then, but now it's like the rush of adrenaline thing. Like it's out and people are, you know, talking about it and the reviews are coming more and the little Amazon numbers are going down, which is a good thing. You want smaller numbers and oh, right. you, know, you want to be, you the be upper on, up yeah. on the list and all of that. And um, and then I leave Friday for New York, which is a whole nother set of whirlwind things. This is a whole nother set of media. Right. And I'm overwhelmed, happy, and need a nap. <laughs> <laughs> but you feel good about I the do. reception so I far, right? I feel a dream come true. Yeah. It's been really, really lovely. So something, a bunch of things that struck me about the book, but one, you had panic attacks a lot as a young person, especially when you were alone or when you were driving. Um, And because you just mentioned now that it makes you a little bit nervous or you feel overwhelmed. Where are you with all that? I'm very, very happy to say that uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And if the symptoms start to creep in a little bit, I'm at a point in my life where I can do instant reality testing, which is I'm fine. I'm breathing. This is anxiety. I know I'm safe. Uh, and, and everything will be okay. So I'm so really so grateful for that because there were 
a few decades where I could not ever get to that point. No matter mm. how much I knew it was a panic attack, it still came on and took over. And was it's a horrifying, terrifying thing to have. Well, you think you're dying. You do. Yeah. I, yeah. Used, I tell people like who never had it before, I say, so if God himself came down and said, it's okay, you're just having a panic attack, you'd say, fuck you. No, I'm not. I'm dying. <laughs> I'm so convinced I'm dying right now. It's horrible. Another thing that struck me was there was so much insanity with, uh, suddenly it occurs to me, like, is there anyone listening who doesn't know that your dad was George Carlin? Well, now they do. Now they do. There, now we, they we, do. We've, we've solved that problem. And your mother was Brenda Carlin. Yes. Brenda Hosbrook. Hosbrook Carlin. Yeah. So much insanity with your parents and the substances they were doing and the fighting and the chaos mm -hmm. and these moments when you were a little girl where all of a sudden... um feeling you know, your feeling of security just kind of slipped away or you felt that you were responsible which i i could relate so much you, you told that all so well thank you so then when you started getting heavily into drugs i don't know i was a little bit surprised i don't know why maybe because i just expect life to imitate family ties where the kids <laughs> the parents zig and the kids zag because in a in a way, it makes perfect sense, actually. That is one reaction to it. Absolutely, yes. Going the opposite direction. Um, but for me growing up, I think, uh, A, clearly I have genetics for it. Right. Um, and also, back then, you know, the people who did drugs were were on our, were in our tribe. Mm -hmm. It was a tribal thing. And... Um, it, and and the exact age I grew up in when I was a teenager, so I was, you know, 14 in 1977, 15 in 1978. These were still very druggy times. There was no boundaries. And, you know, in LA, a 15-year-old girl like me could get into any club I wanted to get into because I was a girl. Mm -hmm. And so there was just a lot of, you know, looseness and, you know, all that stuff. And and I, you know, we were surrounded by it. Our parents were doing drugs. My parents were sober by this. Well, my, my mom was sober at this point. But a lot of my friends' parents were, you know, smoking weed and stuff like that. And so I think part of it was cultural. Part of it was being in LA, living the fast life. And um, and then this other thing, which would be like the opposite of that would have been being a square or a straight. That's and what that you by when you say tribe. Yeah. Right? And that was not an option because we were the freaks. <laughs> so, and I was so over identified with my father mm -hmm. at that age, you know, like I was on his team. He could do no wrong in my eyes that, you know, my mother's drinking was kind of her problem and alcohol was never my drug of choice. So I got into weed first and then obviously got into cocaine in my 20s. Uh, which did surprise me too, but it's a that's a nasty evil drug that will if if you're prone to it will drag you through hell and back, and you'll be like, what? The, where? How did I get here? <laughs> which in my book I say that if you're like, oh wow, now I'm here, now I'm doing this, now I'm scraping the bottom of a drawer to snort something, you know? It's like wow. And you tried freebase once, once your description of it, because I have, I'm sober-ish like I don't I don't do anything I, I say sober-ish because occasionally I will have a drink but very rarely but nothing right. bad happens anymore yeah. but I I had my you had your with all of that yeah uh never did freebase but 
It's like, I'm like, oh my God, the roots of someone who's super into drugs are still in me because just reading your description of it, I was like, oh, that sounds fascinating. It was really good. You said the magnificent didn't begin to describe it, right? Yeah. It was that kind of euphoria. Well, I mean, did, did you do cocaine? Yeah. Okay. So you know, that first hit, that pure rush, it was that... And this guy we did it with, who was really great. He's like, I don't want anyone talking because the minute you talk, it turns into a cocaine kind of a, a high. But I want you to stay with this euphoria as long <laughs> as possible. And so we all sat there quiet. And it was just, it was like heavenly orgasm euphoria. Like I, it was, it was. And, and I, therefore at this age, I was telling my dad everything I did mm-hmm. because we had no boundaries. And, um, which was funny because I didn't tell him about all the other stuff I was doing. But I told him about this and he, yeah, he flipped out. Had he done that? I'm sure he had tried it, but he knew that Richard Pryor was in trouble and and, and socked up in his house with a, with a pipe. Right. And he knew the evils of it. I'm sure he's had some other friends too that were, that were, had done it or were, you know, being tortured by it. And uh, he was like such a good dad in that moment. He was like the... F- really one of the biggest times in my life that he ever, ever screamed at me and really got very serious and, and scared the shit out of me. And it was like, Oh, that worked. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I won't do that again. Mm-hmm. No need, you know? And, 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 and I was lucky. I, even though I had my foray, my foray, my for what is the word? Foray? Foray into the drugs. Um, I always had a little voice inside of me that knew stop enough. Like they may go over the edge, these people around me. But and I think that is what I gained from being the parentified child around my parents' mm-hmm. abuse was this, oh, there there must be a limit to it. I cannot ever get as messy and ugly as they did. And so that helped me. I It probably saved my life. Right. Another thing that occurs to me is for the child to look at the parent's behavior and decide, I don't want to do that, um, even though it exists in you know TV shows and things like that, that involves like an incredible level of self-possession at a young age to be able to disconnect from the parents. Because yeah. I know that for you know years and years and years, my parents, I just I idolized them. I believe everything they said, even when reality was suggesting something else. And and it takes a lot to be able to 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 see clearly i guess yeah it's a great point and that certainly was not a dynamic in my family i mean we were so enmeshed as a family uh, there was no sense of myself at all outside mm-hmm. of my parents i mean even into my even into my 30s you know i had a discovery when i realized that i think i filtered everything through my parents' opinion, like even like what movies I was going to go see. There would just always be this, how would they feel about it? How right. would they feel about it? And and making sure that it was in alignment with them because it was so terrifying to, to, to make that individual sense of self around mm-hmm. them, uh, which, you know, for other people's, you know, most people do it in their teenage years, you know, they rebel against their parents. And that just wasn't the case for me. So it made my a lot of parts of my journey more complicated for me because that was just my natural way was to disappear into the relationship. And and I'm sure that's part of the, the drugs too for me. Mm-hmm. The enmeshment and your reluctance to individuate, 
Was that because your dad was such a larger than life figure publicly or at home? Did you feel like you needed to toe the line? You know, I think, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think all of that has to do with it. But I think the bottom line is, is when you're an only child, um, and these two grownups are the people that are going to keep you from dying. <laughs> I mean, it's a basic security issue. Which is horrifying if you read the beginning of the book. <laughs> so that, you know, they are the people that, that are going to keep you alive and they're having issues. So you want to do whatever you can, A, to please them, not rock the boat and make sure that they stay alive. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my biggest fear was my mother dying because she was very sloppy drunk for the first 12 years of my life. And it was really terrifying. My dad was more rational and, and he was, you know, he had some rage issues, but he was very much more rational and very functional. Clearly, man had a great career. But um, so I think that was part of it. I think just, a, a, you know, children do what they can to to make sure these parents stay alive. And then on top of that, yeah, my dad was this God-like figure in the culture. So, hmm, yeah, don't want to go against that because it seems like there's a lot of people chanting his name. (laughs) So therefore, hmm, I don't want to be on the outside of that and say, well, there might be something wrong here with this guy. Uh, So I think it, yeah, it all piles on. And 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 even when I was encouraged by them to individuate and to be my own person, I didn't have a lot of practice at it. So it was, I, I just, I, I don't think I even knew how. It mm-hmm. like wasn't even part of my psyche at that time. Well, you probably weren't even aware that you weren't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, because you have your own like sense of self in the world, but but yeah, the, those unconscious forces are are enormous, you know, and and family systems. I mean, you know, and a system wants to stay stable, so it will do what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. And so, if one little person in the system shifts, the whole other system, the rest of the system will shift with it. And that, you know, that felt very dangerous too. Like if I take a stand on this, then what's going to happen to the rest of this? You know, it might've all fallen apart or something. Who knows? Right. At what age did you begin to realize that things were perhaps amiss at home? You know, I think my dad said that, you know, when I was about three or four years old, I started sleeping on the floor in the hallway because my parents were starting to argue you know, loudly and violently with each other. And he knew that I was probably doing that. There was some sort of weird thing, like I either wanted to be safe or I don't know, but he said I would find her sleeping in the hallway. So some part of me already knew that. But, um, you know, when I noticed the first time my mother was drunk, like I made that thing like, oh, she's talking funny and she's walking weird. And, um, there's a scene in the book where I talk about her falling backwards into my dad's suitcase when he's packing. And it was this moment of like, oh, something's f- up with mommy, you know? And um, and then, you know, six, seven, eight years old, that's kind of when you, you know, you start to have like an idea about the world and where your parents are in it and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and that was definitely... Uh, you know, the walking on eggshells just was this way of being in the household. But then there was this extra thing like, 
realizing, oh, that thing in mommy's hand, the drink is making her do that. So now it's like watching how much she's drinking, you know, and you start to become aware of all of this stuff and it, it consumes you. Did you uh, have this like mom's bad, dad's good? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because my mother's this beautiful human being. But yeah, because of the sloppiness of her, of her drinking and her we, my dad and I used to call her Nazi Brenda. She turned into this very bitter, sharp, uh, not nice human being at all when she was drinking. And like I said, my dad was kind of the pot smoker, beer drinker at that time. So he was very mellow and normal compared to her. And she seemed to be bristle at everything, you know? And so, yeah. And I was daddy's little girl. And um, we, be- we kind of teamed up, my dad and I. And we would, you know, especially as I became like 9, 10, 11 years old, we were always monitoring her and trying to talk to how do we get mom to not drink so much? What are we going to do? And she knew that and she felt it was us against her. And so that didn't add any pleasantness, you know. Do you, how do you feel about the fact that there was a little bit of teaming up? And my I'm asking this for a very self-serving reason because in my family, the teams kind of thing would, would happen. And my husband is like, that's so inappropriate. Like it should just not, you know, parents shouldn't align themselves with a child against the other parent. Yeah. No, they shouldn't. It was very wrong. <laughs> it felt completely natural though, Comple- as a child. Completely natural. And um, he was my buoy. I mean, he was keeping, you know, he was the only one keeping some normality in the family. Very inappropriate. Uh, you know, look, having gotten my master's in psychology now, I look at it now and I learned all about this getting my master's. It's like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> Boy, you know, but and what, if, what and, was it that you learned? Well, just that um, it is very inappropriate that parents need to be their their fighting needs to be, be between them. You should never triangulate with a child. It it messes with their mind completely because it, it does pin one parent against the other, and um, it's none of the, the child's business really what's going on between the parents. And it, I think, can give the child a really inflated sense of their role in the house. Because it's like, oh, you're a peer. And then all of a sudden, when you're not a peer, I mean, some of my, hi, I'm talking about me now. <laughs> some of my darkest times of my childhood that I can remember are, were when all of a sudden they'd be pull the we're the parents. Yes. That's why card. And I was like, excuse me, I used to have equal footing in here. What the fuck? I mean, that was like, it was baffling to me. I. Uh- you are one incredibly insightful human. Yes. Well, thank it you. creates an incredible <laughs> sense of what they call narciss- narcissistic power because you you are a child and you're given this, you know, for me, I was like my father's emotional wife. I mean, that's yeah. kind of how they talk about it. And yes, it gives you an incredible sense of power and equality when you're eight years old <laughs> and you have no sense of power equality in the world and shouldn't. You should be a person who's, you know, having boundaries put upon you and, you know, and being shaped as a child to, toward your own individual path. And, and yeah, so for me growing up then, and, and I think, you know, one of the things about in this book and sharing my story is I wanted to share the the ugliness of that entitlement feeling because it's part of the pathology of a family like this Mm -hmm. and how I had to go through that and undo that in order to come out the other side with a real sense of self because I had a false sense of power and self because of that. And, and it's, and it's kind of, 
I feel very vulnerable in some ways sharing that part of me. And some people like, do you feel embarrassed? No, not really embarrassment. I just know that some people are really going to get it because they have kind of an intelligence or an insight and they read it and then other people are going to be like, oh, she's just a narcissistic spoiled girl. And it's like, yeah, that would be the point of that part of the book. I was a narcissistic spoiled girl. You also were a girl at that point in the book. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I remember in my twenties and early thirties in therapy, having to deal with this kind of coming down off of the throne kind of issue and humbling myself as the kid again, Mm -hmm. which means then you also though have to feel the fear and the terror that we didn't allow ourselves to feel in that moment because we were able to be like, oh, well, I'm equal with this person and I'm trying to handle stuff in the house. I don't have time (laughs) for fear and terror right? because I need to figure shit out here, you know? So, you know, you have to kind of go backwards into that stuff and let yourself feel not only the fear and the terror, but pissed off too. Like, what the fuck were you people thinking? <laughs> well, there's a scene in the book, which actually there's so much of the book is so so moving and poignant. There's a scene in the book where your mother comes in and she says, I'm I'm par- it's something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, Kelly, your daddy's taken something and yeah. he's not he's not feeling he's, he's not, not feeling well. well. I need you to help me. Yeah. And he was he had taken bad acid and yeah. was kind of out and of his mind. And he was completely out of his and mind. And you guys sat on him, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's I repressed that memory for years until decades later in therapy uh when it all came up and it was like, "Oh my god." And I went to my parents and I'm like, "Did this happen?" And they're like, uh, "Yeah, it did." <laughs> and they were mortified by it too. But yeah, I mean, that moment where I'm 7, 8 years old and my dad who up until then had pretty much been the rational one, like I've been saying. Mm-hmm. And here he was now, his, you know, he, he had come, come undone. He was completely cracked in half. And he was holding this picture of his old straight self, you know, his old clean cut 60s version of George Carlin, this picture that he had smashed and which is like such an acid thing to do. Like, I'm going to smash my old identity yeah. or something. And his hand was bleeding because the glass had broken. And so now his hand is, and he's crying in a way that's like not safe crying. Like it's, he's not sad about something. He's like his, his mind is, un, you know, uncoupling mm-hmm. or something. And yeah. And my mother, you know, him falling on the, getting on the ground and my mother jumping on him and me jumping on him with her. Was that her to prevent him from? From getting back up and hurting himself again. Right. And because we didn't know what he was going to do. And him just, you know, raging and crying himself to sleep eventually. And uh, yeah, very, very scary stuff for a kid to be involved with. Do you have anger about all that? I did. I did certainly. And I work and I, you know, I've done a hell of a lot of work on myself <laughs> around this. Um I I didn't for a long time. That was the first reaction was, oh, they're funny, cute stories in my life. And dad and I, you know, we'd all kind of make fun of the stories and everything. And you're special because you're I mean, you I, talk about that specialness I'm that you special. felt. Being I'm near one him. of the adults making fun of this. Oh, dad took crazy acid and he thought the sun exploded. And oh my God, I I'm so cool because of this. And there right. was a sense of that. And he's revered by everyone and you got direct you got great access yeah yeah and and, you know and who wants to be the debbie downer and say (laughs) hey you people are really fucked up here you know and fuck you i'm mad at you you know that was the one thing in my household that i've and i'm still i mean i think my whole life that'll be a thing for me is getting in touch with my anger 
in the moment it's happening. Like it's way better now, but it used to be like, <laughs> it would be like a three day delay. <laughs> I'd be like three days later, I'd be like, man, I'm really pissed off about that thing. And, I, and then like when I'd get to one day and then I'd get to like a few hours and now it's like, oh, it comes up right while I'm feeling it. It's like, yay, I'm feeling rage. <laughs> but yeah, I finally did get to feel it and got to express it to my mother in a healthy way, finally, in my 20s. And and with my dad too, you know, part of the dance I do in this book and in my life with my dad was not knowing how to really express all of that to him. And uh, we had our come to Jesus moment when I did my first solo show in 99. And I wrote about my mother. My mother got diagnosed with liver cancer and five weeks later she was dead. And she died f from after from side effects of the chemo, but sh she had very little time to live anyway. It was very aggressive and it, it was very advanced. But it, And it was unrelated to the it breast cancer it was she had Yeah, because she had hepatitis C. Oh, yeah. Right. And she had fibromyalgia. She had a lot of autoimmune issues. And yeah, they said it wasn't the same tissue as the breast cancer. Um, but uh, my dad at that time he was under an enormous amount of financial pressure. He had a ton of IRS debt and he, his new book was about to come out and he had, he'd, he'd gotten advance on a bunch of concerts and he had to go out and the IRS was always threatening to take their house away and everything. And, and here my mom is, you know, this is like the, you know, the it's, it's happening. Death is entering our house. And what was fascinating about it was a, the we like went into a time machine and we're like, woo we're traveling back. It's 1974 again. And um, we're kind of all in denial. And my dad's on the road and I'm at home taking care of my mom. And I felt hugely abandoned by him in that moment and did feel anger and rage, but swallowed most of it. Didn't really allow it because I was also in pure shock at watching what was happening with my mother and just trying to stay afloat mm -hmm. and just, and I was in denial too. We were all like, so can I get you some orange juice? You know, we were just kind of not really talking about it. I didn't have the the great conversation I wish I'd had with my mom about, holy shit, you know, what's going on here? We, I, I wasn't capable of it at that time. Would she have been capable of it? She was and she wasn't. She, she I mean, no, I don't think so. Uh, you know, because I, I think about it now, we found a pad of paper that she'd had when she'd first gotten the diagnosis after she died. And in it, she wrote, um, it's been one hell of a ride. Um, you know, good times, bad times or something like that. And it was like, she had come, she had come to reckoning with it, I think, but we didn't really talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. And there was just one moment where it was two days before she died where I picked, we were coming back from chemo and she said, I, I really hope I don't die. I still have a lot more to do. Aww. And I'm trying to make a left turn from Wilshire on a 26th street. And I'm like bawling now. Like that was the biggest moment of truth between my mother and I even getting close to talking about it because I said to her, well, I, I don't want you to die either. Um, so we were all in denial and dad went on the road. He had to do some concerts and things like that. And, and I was at home watching my mom die. And I was at home when, when she did go to the hospital and die and they revived her and everything. So, but I was completely unable to share any of that in the moment with my dad. And then two years later, I wrote a one woman show and talked about that in the show and um, sent the script to my dad. And, <laughs> and my dad rightly so was like, I'm like, Hey, Hey, did you read the script? He's like, yeah. Um, so uh, we need to talk 
at your therapist's office. And because he knew I needed to be at my therapist's office because he knew it was going to be the real conversation. And we did. We had this really truthful, amazing, honest conversation. And it was, he said to me, I, I feel like this is a betrayal. You're willing to talk about this in front of a room full of strangers, but you can't come to me and tell me about how upset you were when I was on the road with mom. And wow. I was so terrified to share those feelings with him because I thought, you know, it was just so black and white in my mind. I thought, oh, if I share that with him, he's never going to love me. Like I didn't get that people who love you can tolerate that kind of stuff, which is strange because my parents loved each other and they tolerated mm -hmm. a horrible amount of baggage with each other. Um, but you know, I wanted to be kind of have some sort of pristine, perfect relationship with my dad in some way. And yet from that moment on, once we talked about that, and he was so gracious about it. I mean, you know, he was like, when he said the words, I'm an artist, and you're an artist, and I'd never ask you to change a single word of this, but I can't come and be in the audience, Kelly, it's just too painful for me. I mean, what a gracious, amazing thing to say. And from that day forward, in 1999, until the day he died, we practiced consciously learning to tell each other how we were doing and how we were feeling. And it made our relationship a little more complicated because we got to be real with each other. And it's a little scarier to do that after kind of having this, you know, kind of, I'm going to be the perfect daughter and won't you be my perfect daddy? Um, but, oh man, it was just so much more authentic and grounded and and trusting, you know, and it's, and it taught me a lot about not being so afraid to um, fail people in my life that like we can recover from failure in relationships. That's so great that you had that experience. Yeah. I'm so grateful I did. Okay. Truly, truly. I have two questions and I'm going to spit them both out so I don't lose them. Although in the course of saying that, I feel like they're, what is, what is going on with me? I'm relating too much. I'm relating so strongly with you. I've lost myself. Your unconscious material is rising up, Allison. <laughs> it really is. Um, if I remember correctly, when you were last on the show, you talked about your dad's reaction to your one woman show. Uh, and it, affected you so deeply that you canceled a tour. Is yes. that this is that that's the same that's the same incident. So you've changed your feeling about it. No, I okay. haven't. I canceled my tour at that time. Right. I, I mean Because now you described it as a gracious thing he said. No, I mean I think ultimately it the 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 thing about him saying that I'm an artist and you're an artist and I would never ask you to change a word of it. He didn't tell me to cancel the tour. I canceled the tour. Mm -hmm. I was afraid that if I went forward, I would lose him. That he was able to, um, he was he was able to hold all of it for me. I didn't think he was capable of that. I thought, oh, this is a black and white relationship. Right. Uh, he either I either do what I think is going to keep us connected, or I do the thing that you know I follow my bliss and I risk disconnecting from him. And and as we've talked about already, risking disconnecting from him was just not an option right. for me. So, but it was my first act of like individuation of like, hey, I had a different experience around mom's death than you did. <laughs> but at the time when he said that, that I would never ask you to change a word, but I personally can't be in the audience, it's too painful. Did you feel, what was your reaction at the time to what he said? Did you think that it was uh, like, that's a fair statement or were you like, God, you know, were you No, upset? I felt that was a fair statement. I mean, I mean, I wished... 
I wished he could have just been my dad and been there for me and say, Hey, I'm going to rise above this. And, you know, and yeah, and face up to the fact that I fucked up as a parent with all this drugs and alcohol. And I mean, I, I think in some ways, you know, he, and he said it publicly many times, the one regret of his life was that, that how his, he and my mother's addictions affected me as a child. Um, but, and, and I wish that he had, had had more space inside of him at times to come and see me do my work. He saw me only once read at a a spoken word thing. Um, But you know, that kind this, this work that I do made him uncomfortable. It wasn't his favorite thing. Did that, does that crush a little part of my heart? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Do I understand that he's a different human being and that's how he's wired? Yeah. You know, parents aren't perfect. That's what I've gotten from all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, they're not perfect. You know, they, he unconditionally loves me, loved me till the day he died. That I get, but that doesn't mean he has to approve everything. You know, I mean, that's kind of, and that's the healthy part. Mm-hmm. That's the part about relationships is you don't have to like everything the person you love does, you know, it's, right. and we survive it. We're right. okay. It's okay. That, and that ultimately is unconditional love. Well, that's what I've heard uh, via therapists is that, is that when you can see them clearly, that is when you can actually love them. And I'm yeah. like, I'm stuck over here still upset about certain things. I can't, I'm, I want to get there, but I just can't yet. I'm struggling on my way there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really important to stay in that spot of the struggle and, you know, and things will crop up for me too in therapy, even still where I'm like, you know, and sometimes my therapy, my therapist, you know, have to like say to me, you know, um, you could probably be upset about this, right? You know, (laughs) like it's not really appropriate that that happened. Like it's okay you know, I'm like, oh yeah, like I just gloss over that still, don't I? Still doing that. And, and then feeling the outrage of it, um, is a really healthy, important part of it. And then at some point you do get to the place where you realize we're all broken. We're all doing the best we can, even in the most fucked up situations, they were still trying to do the best they could. And, and at some point, I get exhausted by it. And that's why I move on to it's like, I just need to let this go because I want to I want to move forward. You know, and there's and there's something in like, you know, if you're stuck in something like that, there's an you've made an investment in something Mm -hmm. in that moment, you know, it's like, and that that thing about, you know, wanting, God, you know, wouldn't it be really amazing if we could, for sure, make other people know that they're wrong, and we're right? Yeah. Like that would be that would be right up there with flying and being invisible. Pretty much so, yeah. (laughs) And yet, we don't get a lot of chances to do that. Life isn't work; doesn't work that way, you know. So, but there's there is an investment in it for sure. There's a sense of investment, yeah. And where do you think this notion that if you were to, uh, you know, disappoint? someone or disappoint him that the love would go away where did that come from god you know i i don't know i mean i guess you know i really think about and and you know uh, from a psychological point of view it's really like the three-year-old's version of reality Mm -hmm. it's that black and white it's that you know if i make mommy or daddy mad they won't love me anymore and they will go away and so there's it so there is some part of me that was very 
stuck and fixated at that age where I didn't understand that, um, you know, I could be, do something wrong and still be loved. And, and it's, you know, I, and yeah, it's, it's a deep psychological wounding for sure. Right. So it sort of goes back to that idea, the child's version of reality, which is that everything is about them. Very much so. So yeah. if they disappear, it was you that caused it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's a very, it's a very young version. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were last on, we talked a bit about, um, about psychology and you going to Pacifica and Mm -hmm. we were talking about Freud and you were saying that sort of the more you look at, at different people's theories, the more you realize that every theory actually represents that person's psychological makeup. Yes, absolutely. It's what you learn when you're there. Yes. Right. So my question for you, uh, is, are there any theories of your own that you developed over the years that you look at now and you're like, Oh, I, I came up with that just to sort of justify what was going on with me. Oh, Wow. God, that's a great question. And that's something I'd probably have to meditate on a little bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think that there's, I, I don't know, you know, it's like, as you kind of age and go through different philosophies, or, or, you know, it's like, what do you, what do you look to, to, to bring some solace into your life? You know, I think that might reveal something. And um you know, I, I really, I guess, I don't know specifically how to answer that question, but there's something about, uh, in my 20s, I was really keen on finding enlightenment. Like, mm-hmm. I really wanted to, like, meet an enlightened being and really believed that there were Buddhas walking on this earth and that um, that there was this other state of mind that could relieve me of all of this pain and confusion inside of me. And that's, you know, kind of a very immature beginning, how a lot of people start the path of the spiritual path. And is that like just looking for new parents, essentially? I think it is. And I think it's, you know, and it just depends on what tradition you're into. I think for like Christianity, it's for people like, you know, being saved by God, the father in the sky or Jesus, you know, your, your favorite uncle, um, (laughs) who, you know, or maybe he's your brother. I guess he's your brother. Technically, I guess (laughs) we call each other brothers and sisters in that, in that place. Um, so yeah. So it's like the magic wand kind of stuff. Like it just, if I just had a magic wand and just to, and just really believing that there was a magic wand out there. And then this come to Jesus moment, ironically, uh, (laughs) where you realize that, oh, there is no rescuing and that, it's actually survivable to, to, to finally be in that, to realize that there's no rescuing and that from there you gain strength and wisdom. And then from that, so you've got like seeking the perfection and then you seek, the, then you're in the humanity of it. Then from that, there's this beautiful kind of mixing of the two that creates this third thing, which is that, you know, finding wonder and awe in ordinary moments of life, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the beautiful, and all of that. And so I, I would say if I were to sit down and kind of track all of my kind of seeking mind that's, you know, always looking for the answers or the philosophy or the thing to, to, to quote unquote, save me from myself, probably in there I, I could find, you know, what is it about me that, you know, was searching out that particular thing and what my 
theory might be about life. But, um, you know, I look at, I think an easier way to look at it is, is my reaction to my dad's philosophy about life, which is later in his life, after 50, he decided to give up on the species. <laughs> and, um, and it served his creativity in a huge way, because he could pretend that he was kind of floating outside the planet and kind of detach from it. He called it bemused detachment, and look at us as a species and then comment about it. And it was horrifying and thrilling to, to hear what he came up with because it was so right on. And yet a part of you kind of died inside because you're like, but I have to be here another 40 years and <laughs> I, I need to have a little bit of hope, you know? And so I feel he did that to protect his heart. And he and I even talked about this. I mean, at one point he, you know, he, I've given up on all the species and we're all circling the drain. And I said to him, so if that's the case, then um, why do you bother? Why the hell do you bother going out and getting on a stage? And he, he, you know, really honored me in that moment. He was like, yeah, okay, touche, got me there. <laughs> um, scratch the surface of a cynic and you get a brokenhearted idealist, you know, and, and he technically didn't think of himself as a cynic, but um do you, you think of him as cynical? No, definitely not. I think cynical people are like, n you know, cynical people are like the Koch brothers. Like those people are ultimately <laughs> the most cynical people because they know that they're bullshit and they're, they're using the system against them. I think my dad was a brokenhearted idealist. And, um, and I, and I for sure think he did that to protect himself from disappointment, you know, because it's really disappointing to watch what's going on in the planet. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that my dad, he, he dealt with those kind of feelings of despair and depression by detaching and being in his head and living in his head and creating incredible art from it, you know, um, and his intelligence was incredible. But he fully admitted that he lived from like the neck up, you know, that it was hard for him to be in his body and be in his in his heart. And one on one, he was always in his heart. My dad was a very warm and generous man. Uh, very, very kind and very, very thoughtful. But um, but this intellect led him and and so and, and that disappointed me at times about him. So like I, I, you know, and yet it's so funny when he died, I found it's, you know, we're talking about family systems, how like one thing changes in the system and everyone changes. Mm -hmm. So when he disappeared, I used to kind of be in trying to balance him out in some way. So I think I was almost too hopeful in my thinking and a little too woo woo and a little too needing a little magical thinking to go on in order to balance this enormous weight of darkness in my dad at times. And when he died, I found myself like merging more towards him, like seeing the, A, the rationality of his point of view and seeing the merits of his argument. And now I think I've found a really great place, which is kind of somewhere between my old pure woo-woo magical thinking and my dad's very, very rational, you know, grounded thinking. And I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle of it, um, which uh, it, but it took me, uh, I would find myself in very, I, I remember being in a really dark, despairing place, like completely bought into my dad's point of view after he died. And I had Marion Williamson on my <laughs> show and I was like, Marianne, you have to save me from this darkness. <laughs> 
did she? She did actually. She really, she coached me through an amazing stuff. And really that's when I started to balance out where I realized I could use his rational logic around it and hold all of that to, and then be in the space of like, and yet anything is possible at any moment because that's the way life Mm -hmm. is too, you know? So yeah, it's like you were released from needing to uh, identify yourself as in relation to this person. And that I get so much, this whole thing of like, regardless of what side I end up on, whatever, regardless of where I end up around the thing, it's still somehow in relation to, to this, these, these forces. And I, I want to be past that. And it's so interesting because I think it really shows what kind of social creatures we are. Yeah. That we think we're these individual autonomous free will things and we really are just dancing with the environment yeah that we really are part of our environment and this ego thing which is an important thing you have to have a healthy ego otherwise you can't get out of bed in the morning and you can't put on your pants and things like that um (laughs) important to have a healthy ego but this illusion that we really are separate that's that's a cool little place to, 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 to kind of learn to live into and pisses the ego off. Like, mm-hmm. well, no, I've got my own thoughts. I have my own way of being. Um, but no, we are just um, bouncing off of each other here. Right. Yeah. Um, something else that struck me about the book was that you were in an abusive relationship very, very young. Yeah. Makes me realize that I don't, I don't know why I haven't encountered stories I mean, thank God I haven't, but it feel like usually when you hear of abusive relationship with someone in their twenties, yeah. you were a teenager, yeah. right? Yeah. And it was a very weird thing because I mean, uh, I know other girls, because we were all teens at this time, who were also in this person's world in that way. And he didn't act that way with anyone else. So it was something very specific to our relationship that we triggered something in each other. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. And, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, you know, like, I don't know what it was that we were doing with each other, but there was something there that I and my particular behavior triggered. And I'm not blaming myself for this at all. Um, but it does, it's a mystery to me. Like I hear other ones, but like, no, we never acted like that. I'm like, really? Wow. That's so interesting. Um, and yeah, to be 15, to, well, I was 16, 16 and 17. And to be in a relationship with someone my age who was threatening to me emotionally and at times physically um, uh, was so confusing because he was a part of the tribe. And I really, really, really loved him and was uh, adored him. And um, he had a hold on me. You know, all those cheesy love songs they were all you know they just all fed me all the, if you for years and years, i mean even later in the book he's still popping up yeah yeah it's it's you know it was this i don't know you know if you believe in past lives or karma or something that's the way it felt it felt like we were working some shit out i don't know who knows <laughs> i have no idea um and it took me a long long time to um unhinge myself completely from whatever that is you know mm-hmm. sometimes you just meet people and you, or you see two people that, you know, for decades do this dangerous dance with each other right. and can't get unlocked for some reason. And there is, there's some deep psychological stuff you're working out or I don't know what it is, but. um, I definitely had some of those and it is so hard to unhook. It is. It's, 
and I mean, just, it almost just feels like that it's just magical that somehow you get past it. But yeah. I, so many of my, I can remember so many times thinking, I should not see this person anymore. And it's like the idea of not seeing them anymore yeah. is agony. Yeah. And then you think when then now I think like, holy shit, what was going on? It certainly wasn't truly about that person. There's no way. I right. mean, that magnetic pull right. was not about that dick. It, it, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. There's I like, I don't know what psychic, you know, not psychic, like weird psychic, but psyche forces right. are at Something's, play in yeah. that moment because it feels it is. I mean, I talk about it as like the magnetic pull of pull of the sun. You know, I mean, that's the kind of it was like. I don't want to go near him, you know, and it's like dragging you <laughs> yeah. and you're like, ah, I can't stop. It's just so weird. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it did. It it ha- had a hold on me all through my 20s. I mean, I would think about him and encounter him every once in a while. And um, did the physical abuse go on? No, Always? no, 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 no. The physical, I mean, once, I mean, basically we, we were done with each other by the time I was 18 and I met my, my husband at that time. Um, my future husband, another person, but, um, no, I mean, it was, it was here and there. And, you know, it's that kind of a relationship though, where you don't know at any moment, which person you're going to get, are you going to get the nice loving person who's connected to you on a very deep level, or is there going to be something that sets them off and you're going to get this other thing. And it's, it's like gaslighting. It is that form of, of, crazy making. Mm-hmm. And so you don't know who you're going to get. And so it even didn't matter the number of times he was physically abusive with me because any moment with him was dangerous. And that was part of the allure was right. the danger. But it it was a sense of, you know, as long as I can keep him calm or in a certain thing, then I'll get the good part of the danger. I won't get the other thing. But that um, terror of any moment now it's kind of like stockholm syndrome i mm-hmm. guess in some way um will that other part come out you know so you're living in constant fear and yet like you said but i don't want to give this person up because- well no because because well i don't want to speak for you but for me it's like because you can and i haven't been in that ex- exact situation but mm-hmm. similar the the part of the person that's bad and scary, you just sort of externalize or you put, you compartmentalize. You're yeah. like, that's not the real them. Yeah. The real them is what the part that feels good. Yeah. And then there's the thing we talked about earlier, which I think feeds into this, which is that narcissistic, powerful sense of the, the child. Yeah. So then the, that part of you really believes that if you love this person enough, you will change them. Mm-hmm. And that's an insane thought because it's not true. And that comes from, that child believing that they have the power to make their parents okay. So I just, you know, you just, you replicate this family stuff as you move forward. And, you know, and your job is to clear it all out and kind of bring it up and see what it is and see how you actually have choice in the moment and move on from it. But yeah, I mean, even in my twenties, I was replicating, oh, let's get into a super chaotic relationship and I'll manage it all and I'll love him to death. And if I love him enough, he'll change. And, um, you know, and I'm going to be perfect. And as long as I'm perfect and okay, then, and pretend everything's all right. Everything is, you know, I just replicated it until I could no longer take it myself. You know, it is fascinating how two people can have a certain toxic relationship that, that, that one person won't, like you're saying, won't have with other people. Cause I think when I was young, I just assumed I always go for the wrong kind of guy. That's how I looked at it. But Mm -hmm. now it's like, 
No, they were the wrong kind of guy for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They were probably perfectly fine for someone else. Yeah. It wasn't, it, it, it's, I mean, sometimes someone's just a bad person. Uh, agreed. Yeah. And yet sometimes there is something very specific about yeah. the chemistry that just, you know, you're, we're working our mommy and daddy shit out <laughs> on each other. I mean, it's once again, we're not individuals. We're just working our shit out on each other, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a unromantic way of, it but, but, but I think the truth. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, like I'm in a marriage now that I've been in for, I've been with my husband for 23 years and, you know, your, your, your stuff does crop up. That stuff does crop up. The healthy relationship, the healthy marriage is the one that A, doesn't let it stay unconscious, that you know that you have to take back the projections, you have to take back your stuff and work on it yourself because it has nothing to do with that person over yeah. there. That's when the healthy relationship can happen. Yeah. Let's take some questions that people sent in Fantastic. over Twitter. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. All right. Narrator says, did the arrest of Lenny Bruce play a role in G's transition from straight and clean to edgy and provocative? No, the arrest of Lenny Bruce happened very early in my dad's career. It was like 61 when my dad was actually arrested with Lenny. Um, did but, but the thing about this is my dad was that guy. My dad was Lenny Bruce inside. He just, you know, chose the successful path at that time. Uh, so no, not directly. Dropping some acid definitely affected him <laughs> in, in that choice. Okay, Jen says... She has so much material for more than one book. How did she choose? Uh, where did she start? How did she choose? Where did she start when writing the book? It's, it's a great question. Uh, and I really decided that this book needed to be about my individuation process. And so I needed to go back into my childhood and show how all that's shaped, how, you know, how, how it's hard to be individuated from this. And, and my, this is my, what they call a Pacifica, my personal mythology, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it, this is this narrative of my life, focusing on my relationship with my parents, especially with my father. So I knew it was going to be about the father daughter relationship. My mother has a huge part in that, of course, also. Uh, and, and so especially that like the second half of the book where I'm a grown up. I used those times to really figure out what events and things I wanted to talk about that brought me back into my relationship with my dad, bounced off of our dynamic, and then also talking about my dad's career and where he was at. So there was kind of this parallel thing going on. What was your experience of writing the book like? I loved it. I loved it. Really, the, to be able, I was very, just so grateful that I, I got a decent amount of money adv in advance to me so that I could take off nine months of my life and sit in my house and write this book and tell the world, hey, you know, I'd love to do that thing, but I'm writing a book and I can't. <laughs> and I loved the creative problem solving of writing. Um, I'm so grateful that the Carlin gene of the gift of the gab through my, my whole Carlin line uh, all the way back to great grandparents are are alive and well in me and giving me the joy of all of that. Uh, let's see here. EJ says half empty or half full. Oh, always half full. 
And Doug Benson, the Doug Benson says, her dad railed against golf courses in his act. How does she feel about them? <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad would give personal uh, discoms discompensation. Is that what they say? The Catholics say it uh, to 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 me. Uh, my husband grew up, his dad was manager of country clubs. Oh, how funny. And and my husband is not a country club guy at all. I mean, you know, they're working class, these people. And so his dad was a working class manager of these places. So Bob, my husband, plays golf. I got into golf because we go to Scotland and my friend has a, a beautiful home there with a private golf course on it. So I learned how to play. <laughs> and uh, And I explained to my dad that there's things called public courses where ordinary people get to go out and be in nature and hit a ball around. And he was like, Oh, that sounds kind of nice, you know? So uh, we worked it out. Okay. And lastly, Mark Griego says, what are her thoughts on baby ducks? I'm a big fan of ducklings. So. Yes. Uh, and I answered him online already because I saw it was a great question. And I said, um, definitely prefer them way more than adult ducks. Yeah. I mean, baby ducks are really cute. Irresistible. Irresistible. And I was going to be jokey with him and say, oh, they're delicious. But then I thought, oh, no, I, I don't, I would never eat a baby duck. So I can't really say that. Thank you. On behalf of baby ducks, thank you for <laughs> never eating a baby duck. Yeah. You know, I read something which I never knew, uh, even though I had, I had um, ducks when I was a kid. Ducklings or ducks have one of the shortest baby or infant phase they grow up they grow up so fast they grow up so fast yeah. these days they're so cute and they're uh, only cute for just like 10 days or something yeah. yeah and then all of a sudden you have a duck it's yeah. like i didn't well and here's the thing i always think about do you ever see baby pigeons no because no, they must have like an instant child they must go right. from like really cute furry to hi i'm an adult i'm flying because <laughs> i've never seen a baby pigeon no. fly ever no never. although maybe you haven't you just wouldn't recognize it maybe yeah a pigeon chick i'm not very big on what a, you know, kind of teenage pigeons, like clearly. <laughs> right. I need to read up on this. Awkward adolescent <laughs> pigeon. Let's do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay. Des says, Instantly have a burning hatred for the person who takes the treadmill next to me, even though there are plenty of open ones. Just me or everyone. I, yes, perhaps not that specific uh, thing, but I do think about the fact that's going back to us being social creatures or just the way we're wired. You can have hatred for someone simply over how they handle space. Like on oh. an airplane, when you end up hating everyone, like I'm sure everyone's perfectly lovely, <laughs> but I hate them all. Yes, absolutely. Or it is that like, even for me, it's not treadmill, but it's like the bar stool. Like there's a, there's, there's five things open. Why are you sitting next to me? Like, yeah. I don't I, really, I don't need you to, I don't need to watch you going through your Blackberry emails right now, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It is weird. I feel like there's just an unwritten social contract though, that you just don't, I mean, like on, I'm jumping all around, but on this show, people, frequently people will talk about uh, when someone takes the urinal next to them. Yeah. Which I guess is a real faux pas. That in would a men's be room. awkward. Yeah. 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 Okay. Dale Heim says, How unreasonable impatience sets in when grocery checker keeps chatting with person in front of me while I stand and wait, just me or everyone? Um, I feel like it's not unreasonable impatience when that sets in. I feel like that's reasonable impatience to be irritated with the chatty grocery person who's taking forever. Well, it's, it's a degree of chattiness. I 
personally have this kind of vow that I I treat grocery clerks especially like as gods because that's a hellacious job. Yeah. Can't even imagine having that job. And they and so I try to look them in the eye and treat them like a human and say hello and really ask them, how are you today? Not just like, oh, how are you? Uh, so if it's a moment or two or whatever, but um, I don't know. I, for me, I practice my Zen mindfulness in the market, like just in general, like Trader Joe's is a great place to practice this because the line is always so long. And everyone's so forced and chatty. And yes, and you just have to just be like, I'm in no time, no space. I have nowhere to go, no one to be. It's all going to be good. So I, my impatience for that kind of stuff, just I just floats away. It's survival. You're a better person. You're no, a better person than I am. I just, I, yeah, whatever. Do no. you think you're um, being extra nice and human to the grocery checker outer people? Do they appreciate it? Absolutely. Yeah, you can see it in their eye. It's like, oh, connection. That's it's all we want. We just want a little human connection during the right. day. That's all. It's I, And it brings me great joy to do it. I always have this thought. I could be one of those gracious, great, excuse me. I said gracious in a really <laughs> weird way. There's a T in there. Gracious, nice people who spreads joy. But I'm not. Because <laughs> everyone loves those people. Those people just flit about life spreading joy, making everyone feel good. Well, see, I get, but I'm not. <laughs> I get joy from it. So yeah. it's a total selfish act. It's the ultimate selfish act for me. Well, but I mean, you could look at it that way, but it isn't really. You're spreading joy. Jellybean says, whenever I need to, oh, I like this one. Whenever I need to paint, I think of Blair on the Facts of Life who told Mrs. Garrett, I don't have any old clothes. Just me or everyone. Um, that is from one of my favorite Facts of Life episodes because the girls need to paint the dorm room. And uh, Mrs. Garrett says, you know, wear your old clothes. And Blair says she doesn't have any old clothes. <laughs> so I don't find myself having that reaction when I need to paint because I don't ever need to paint. <laughs> but I enjoy this just mirror everyone. I love that. James Leroy Wilson says, often want to yell at comedians and writers, just because you're raised Catholic doesn't mean you have a monopoly on guilt. I don't find myself wanting to yell that, but I do understand that feeling of like, hey, a lot of cultures have guilt baked into them. Well, Jews. Yeah. Hello. I mean, let's I mean, I think the Irish and the Jews kind of have the good a lot of monopoly on that, but, right. but guilt is a human thing and it it's a really, you know, and I guess it's the religious part. Like if you in, I don't know, 2000 years of religion will drive right. anyone crazy. Right. It, it, I will say my friends who went to Catholic school, they do seem to have a special yeah. extra baked in religion, uh, relationship with guilt. Yeah. Because you know, the Jews, the guilt comes from the mother, but for the Catholics, it comes directly from God. This, I mean, you know, <laughs> right. being born into original sin, that is a bummer. Yeah. That's just, yeah. that's a lot to put on a, a child. Matt says, when someone holds the door, I wonder if they really meant to hold it for the person behind me, even if there isn't one. Sometimes, sometimes I will wonder that. I always wonder, um, nowadays especially, uh, are they doing that just because they want to look like a good person and they don't <laughs> really mean it? Like they're not really doing it to be a good person, but they feel like they have to. Right. That's right. my thought always That's a that real, moment. that's good just me or everyone. Yeah. People. That's a cynical thought. Thank you. James Leroy Wilson also says, haven't seen ice cream sundaes with whipped cream and a cherry on top served in homes, only in restaurants. Is it a law? I, that, that's the case with most garnish, I think. 
<laughs> like who's garnishing their food at home? Yeah. Except those foodie freaks. Right. Who, who plate, first of all, they use the <laughs> verb plate. And then they take a rag and they wipe around the edge, just like on food shows. Yes. And they do that like thing with the herbs or something, you know, like really no one's doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Brian Williams says, I write my newborn son letters full of advice and life hacks just in case I die in a fiery car accident. Just mirror everyone. Well, I don't have kids. uh, So I don't do that. I think it's really sweet though. And sad. (laughs) I'm just going to say the same thing as, wow, that's so sweet and so morbid, depressing. Yeah. That you stop having those thoughts. Though you don't, like, I get it, like, you know, but, um, but really, you know what? Your kid will have a good book someday. If you do die in a fiery crash, then he'll have a book of the letters. Oh, and it'll be so sweet at that point. That's true. Yep. But I wonder, is he actually writing them out or these emails? Emails to my son and yeah. where are they going? Yeah, you know? that's that's not okay with me. That's not as cute. Adri214 says, did anyone else used to pretend to have braces in elementary school by stretching out a paper clip and mold it to your teeth? Yes, 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 times a thousand. I also would take necklaces, like a silver necklace yes. and hold it up to my teeth. I wanted braces so bad until- You got I was, them. Yes, and then I didn't want them at all. Oh, but when hell. I was a little kid, I always wanted to be older and older kids had braces. Yeah. So- yeah, I used to do all sorts of stuff like that. God, that's right. The silver chain. That totally brings me back. Yeah. And I do that with paper clips too, and I try to get it to stay in my mouth. <laughs> and I also really wanted my ears pierced, which I didn't get my ears pierced till I was 12 or 13. So I would tape beads onto my earlobes, and they would never stay. But I did all sorts of things that's to try so to be older. Cute. Thank you. And Rick Peter Peters says, when I step on storm drains storm drains. I imagine falling through and I am breaking my knee. I also imagine dropping my car keys down them. I imagine dropping my phone more than keys these days. I was just in Seattle and there were some drains and I thought, what if I just, what if my phone just slipped right down there? What would I do? Yeah. Yeah. I think the phone is the thing now. Absolutely. But yeah, I always do like in New York too, when you walk over the the grades where the I subway is, yeah. but I kind of make myself feel like people are like, you're okay, Kelly. It's perfectly fine. You know, but you could, you could fall all the way into the train. I know. Has anyone though? I don't think so. Right. No. Yeah. I don't like to walk. I always, especially if I'm in a shoe that has a heel. Oh, anything, forget that. Yeah. yeah you, like, you, you will you fall. Need to walk around you that. will fall right down yes, that. You'll be stuck forever. Well, those were some wonderful Just Me or Everyone's. Kelly Carlin. It was delightful Thank having you. you on the show. What have I not asked? Is there anything else you want to get out there? Oh, you always, it's always, I was so excited to be here because it's Thank always you. such a great conversation. And uh, no, I can't imagine anything else. I mean, this has been such a pleasure. And, uh, you know, we got to get all psychological and everything. Which, I enjoy getting psychological. Yeah, that's, I think that's why we like each other. So we're in that mm, juicy place with it. So. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Everyone should go out and get a Carlin Home Companion. And hey, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it helps out the show. Thank you for your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. PayPal links on the right side of the page. We have t-shirts on the right side of my website, alisonrosen.com. You'll see a picture of a t-shirt and the words something like, you need a shirt, but not the word something like, just the other part. Click on that and that will take you to the page where you can buy a shirt. We have bonus episodes available. Those are on iTunes. Just search the comedy album section of the iTunes store. We also have ringtones and singles. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. 
you need that. You can get that on Gumroad or iTunes. This one as well. This one on Gumroad and soon to be iTunes. By the time you hear this, maybe it will be on iTunes. Uh, that's Gumroad, G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com slash Allison Rosen. Gumroad.com slash Allison Rosen. So if you're an iPhone person, uh, you know, you might want to go to iTunes. If you're someone who doesn't like iTunes or you are not an Apple person, go to Gumroad. And we also have the song that Greg Heller made for the Owl Quiz that's available on Gumroad as well for a pay-what-you-want price Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Jeff, where should we go for you? I'm Colonel Jeff Fox on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Excellent. And Kelly, um, tell them where to find you and plug all your things. I'm uh, on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin, because I'm a dork. And uh, you can find me. Is that why? Is that because you're a dork or is yeah. it because there is a Kelly? Someone has no, Kelly No, I was a dork. I thought, oh. I need I need a space between my name. Don't you Don't you people know what you're doing? Don't you? This is strange language you're using here. Otherwise, they'll think it's Kelly Arlen. Right. This was seven years ago. I didn't know what was going on. So I have Kelly underscore Carlin. I'm on Facebook. I have a public page there and kellycarlin.com, of course. And my Sirius XM show is the Kelly Carlin show once a month. Haven't been doing my podcast lately. We'll get back to it after all this crazy book stuff. And if you're coming to New York City next week, if this is on soon enough, please come see me. I'm going to be a bunch of events, which you can find on my website. And I'll be traveling around the country, hopefully next year with my show. Perfect. Thank you so much. This was super fun. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen is your new best.